Well, good morning. A uh, beautiful morning it is, and uh, wonderful ministry. I kind of wanted Ken to keep uh, going on. Daughters or Doherty, I just wanted to hear more of them. Um, but uh, I, um, I really appreciate that message, uh, brother. And, and you know what, I think it, it'll fall right into what we're discussing today uh, when we talk about Ezekiel. We're actually moving to Ezekiel. But first, if you're here and you do not have one of the handouts, uh, these are hot commodities. You can't get them on Amazon. Uh, you can't sell them on eBay. Well, you could probably sell them for about three cents a piece. But um, uh, my lovely assistant here, Sam, will uh, bring one to you. We still have plenty if, um, if you wish one. Um, you may notice that we skipped a book. Uh, don't cry over it. Uh, but we will come back to Lamentations. <laughs> yeah, I'll keep my day job. <laughs> I'm thankful for that. Um, uh, we will come back to Lamentations. I thought Lamentations would be a good uh, book for us to discuss in the, concept of, in, in the uh, context of our gospel meeting tomorrow evening. So don't think that we're giving up on Jeremiah, uh, but we are now moving to the third major prophet, as it were. We spent some time with Isaiah. We spent some time with Jeremiah. And today we're going to turn our focus to Ezekiel. And I've entitled this book, Comfort from a Sovereign God. Comfort from a sovereign God. I want you to notice as we do a little bit of reading, and we'll cut back our readings a little bit, I want you to notice the difference of the character and personality that we see regarding Ezekiel compared to what we saw with Isaiah and Jeremiah. Both Isaiah and Jeremiah were very clear in their message. You continue to sin. You have a holy God. We've just heard an excellent message on the severity of sin, that it's real. We can't parse sin into little sins and white sins and half sins. And Sin is sin. And you continue in sin, you are going to come to captivity. Jeremiah said it is imminent. And he prophesied to them right to the point of captivity. And you know what? God could have stopped the Old Testament right there. He could have said, I'm done with you. Enough already. I've warned you. I've warned you. I've warned you. The the bow is going to fall. The the judgment is going to come. The storm is starting. I may as well say, we're done. And I'll find another nation to, to, to instruct and to teach and show my ways. But it, it's a marvelous feature to me that God still has an active prophet in the midst of that captivity. And we'll see that with both Ezekiel today and Lord willing with Daniel tomorrow. And even if you simply take that message today, God is not making light of their sin. God is not saying it's okay that they've sinned, but God did not give up on his people. That's the God that I have. Do you know him today? You know what it's like to fail and yet to know that the God that you serve doesn't fail? And not only that, I think it's marvelous that the first, if you will, prophet of the exile, the first one that we read of here is one who comes with a comforting tone. Now, when you think of Ezekiel, what do you think of? You you think of that Bible study you missed, right? If someone says, all right, let's do an 18-part series on Ezekiel, 
Like, whoa, wow, yeah, traffic was really rough in L.A. today, and I had difficulty getting to the meeting. No, I'm not making light of skipping meetings. Please don't. But, but what do you know about Ezekiel? You're like, um, oh, I know about Ezekiel's wheel. Yeah, yeah. Uh, oh, oh, and those dry bones. And what else? Uh, awkward party of one, awkward party of one. I mean, we, we tend not to, to remember very much beyond that. But, but I want to give you a glimpse, a picture today, that Ezekiel, not only did he speak clearly against sin for the, people of, for, for the Lord himself, no doubt, but at that moment when they were that fragile, un- experiencing the devastation of the land, soon thereafter their city would be ravaged, and we'll come to talk a bit more about that when we come to Daniel. They needed... Not just exhortation, but comfort. We've been hearing already from Ken, the marvelous ways of God, how he deals with us, that, that he shows his, his holiness, of course, and it never compromises his holiness, but he has that beautiful ability while he's presenting the truth and maintaining that high standard of coming along and holding your hand. We have a lot to learn from that. Sometimes we think, you know, the way to deal with that brother or sister who's struggling or is failing in a certain way is just to show up with a five-point sermon and preach it, brother, chapter and verse them. Well, when I look at the God of comfort in my Bible, I see one who upholds that standard absolutely, but oh, how tenderly he deals with his people. We discussed a little bit last year, remember when Elijah was suffering? Had that, as we said before, we were talking to the young people. He had that mountaintop experience, and within a day he was depressed. He was suicidal. He had sleep disturbance. He had appetite disturbance. I mean, that's medical criteria for depression. And the Lord sent an angel, and I'd suggest it wasn't just an average Joe angel. This was the Lord Jesus himself. There are times when, I don't want to make it sound like angels are average, by the way. I just mean to say that the Lord sent himself. You know, there's a time when the boss has to come and do the work and not just delegate it to someone else. You may remember, what was the very first thing that angel did? Come up with a five-point sermon? No, no, the sermon came later. First thing that angel did was touch Elijah. He needed the physical hand. And the second thing he did was feed him. So sometimes before you go and fix your spiritual uh, ills in your brother or sister, before you think you know how to make their crooked way straight, you know, a casserole goes a long way. Korean ribs go a long way. (laughs) There's a bit of an inside joke, but oh, aren't they good? I mean, that is like, I know sometimes when you look at how they're cooked, it should be served with a cardiologist, but it is really good. But, um... You know, sometimes meeting that physical need before we hone in on the spiritual problem. And there's no doubt as we're going to see that Ezekiel dealt with their spiritual issue. But he came to comfort them. Let's read uh, together starting Ezekiel chapter 1 verse 1. Now it came to pass in the 30th year, in the 4th month, in the 5th day of the month. He was very precise. As I was among the captives. So you remember the captivity has happened by now. We said it happened around 585, 586 B.C. So Jeremiah, Isaiah had warned them it would come. Jeremiah was very precise in his description. You continue in this way. God's going to take you into a different land. And it happened. 
Now, it didn't all happen at once. There were, if you will, waves, about three major waves of, of individuals who were taking the land. You know, if you were an ancient evil empire, not to suggest that you are, but if you were an ancient evil empire, you know, you, you can't take everything at once, right? But you take them in waves, and then you, you pick, Right? You pick at the gold that you found. right? And so sometimes they wanted the physical resources. Sometimes, as we'll see tomorrow with Daniel, they wanted the human resources. They recognized that Daniel and his colleagues had intelligence and had capacity. And so they wanted to work them right into their administration. We'll talk what it was like for Daniel to go to a pagan university. But here... Um, we find him in that wave of captives that's gone. And so he's telling us that he's already taken away, that the heavens were opened and I saw visions of God. In the fifth day of the month, which is in the fifth year of King Jehoiakim's captivity, the word of the Lord came expressly unto Ezekiel the priest, the son of Buzi, in the land of the Chaldeans by the river Kibar. And the hand of the Lord was there upon him. And I looked and behold, a whirlwind. Now, for those of you who are visual learners, 80% of us identify ourselves as visual learners. This is a challenging one. Uh, lots of artists have tried to capture what this looks like, but try, and get a, try to get a picture in your mind of all these things coming together. A whirlwind came out of the north, a great cloud and a fire enfolding itself, and a brightness was about it, and out of the midst thereof, as the color amber, out of the midst of the fire. Also out of the midst thereof came the likeness of four living creatures, and this was their appearance. They had a likeness of a man. Everyone had four faces, and everyone had four wings. So again, four faces, four wings. This is becoming a 3D challenge, right? Most of us can see in 2D, 3D, it becomes a little bit more difficult. And their feet were straight feet, and the sole of their feet was like the sole of a calf's foot, and they sparkled like the color of burnished brass. And they had the hands of a man under their wings on their four sides, and their four, and their four had faces and, and their wings. Their wings were joined one to another. They turned not when they went. They went everyone straight forward. So this is a, a, a mobile piece with multiple parts. And for the likeness of their faces, they four had the face of a man and the face of a lion and on the right side. And they, had, uh, uh, and they four had the face of an ox on the left side. And they four also had the face of an eagle. Now, um, I don't want to get us too much into numerology. We'll talk a little bit about numbers when we come to Daniel. But the number four, all numbers, frankly, but the number four in particular is an important number in Scripture. Later in this message, we'll talk about the number three. We've already heard about it, haven't we? Ken told us that we have the number three, if you will, implanted into us. God wants us to understand the Trinity. There are people who would argue that even the nature around us speaks of the triune God. Right? Three states of matter. Uh, that there are, uh, that, that even the time in which we live is three. Right? Time comes out of the future, meets us in the present, and goes into the past. So tomorrow, today is tomorrow, but tomorrow, today will be today. <laughs> or yesterday. So someone would, would give, you know, I don't want to stretch the analogy too far, but everything, if you will, in, in its origin is attributed to God the Father. I meet God in the present. I can only meet him in the person of the Lord Jesus. But I only understand the present because of what I've done in the past. The past has taught me where I am today. And I can't understand the person of Christ if not for the Spirit of God. And this, this beautiful triune picture is throughout 
the, the universe, even throughout our physical bodies. And again, I'm not trying to bore you with DNA lessons and the like, but there are many things that reflect the number three. But here we come to the number four. And the number four is a concept of a comprehensiveness. Now, we think of number seven as the perfect number, and we can talk about three as the number of a Trinity. Two is an important number to God, of course, because people either saved or lost. We could go through all the numbers. But number four is important when we describe the concept of completeness. The four corners of the earth, if you will, gives us a sense of the full of the earth, even though we know the earth doesn't per se have corners. There are four gospels written to describe the person of the Lord Jesus. Now, even John says if the books were written uh, that could be written, the whole earth couldn't contain them. It's not as if the four gospels are absolutely comprehensive, but they give you those four different views of the Lord Jesus. The book of Matthew presents him as the king. The book of Mark presents him as the servant, which is why I often say almost every chapter, uh, not that the Bible is written in chapters, as we say, but almost every paragraph in Mark starts with the word and. That's what servants do. They do this and then they do this and then they do this and then they do that. He's constantly active. The book of Luke presents the Lord Jesus as the perfect man. And the book of John, of course, presents us to us as the son of God. Matthew, the king, the lion. Mark, the servant, the ox. Luke, the perfect man, the face of a man. John, the son of God, the one who comes from on high, the face of an eagle. And so you'll see these four images, that of a lion, that of an ox, that of a man, and that of an eagle repeatedly here in Ezekiel, you'll see it again in Daniel. You'll see it very much so in the book of Revelation, of course. And it's not to say that the Lord Jesus can be entirely captured with four images, but it gives us those four beautiful perspectives of the depth of this man. There is no man like this man, is there? Marvelous that we know that Lord Jesus. And there in the book of Matthew, as I say, he's that, that the lion is the, the, the royal, the kingly. We could match colors to these if you're into colors, right? The royal Matthew would be purple. That's the royal color. Uh, the book of Mark, the, the concept of being a servant and of being sacrificial and of giving speaks to us often of the color red, of blood. The uh, perfect man, he's presented as the sinless one, the one without spot, without any blemish, would be the color white. And lastly, in John, we think of the one who comes from on high, the one who, who dwells in a realm different than all of us. Not that we know eagles are, are per se the un most unique animal on the planet, but they have their dwelling in the high place. That speaks to the color blue because it comes from above. And so similarly, you'll see those four colors. Now, I know this goes beyond our study in Ezekiel, but I just want to give you a taste. If there's anything I want to leave with you when we pack up and all leave on Saturday, sadly, I want you to have a passion, a longing to learn more about the Lord Jesus. Not academically, so you can win Bible trivia games, right? But that you love him more. Love the Lord your God with all your mind. That takes effort. But you start to read this and you think, who is this man? There's no one else like him. There's nothing else like this book. All right, so those are the four, the four um, uh, faces at the end of verse 10. We'll go down to verse 26. And above the firmament was over their heads like that of a likeness of a throne, as the appearance of a sapphire stone. And upon the likeness of the throne was the likeness as the appearance of a man above, uh, uh, above upon it. 
And I saw as the color of amber, as the appearance of fire round about uh, within it, from the appearance of his loins even upward and from the appearance of his loins even downward, I saw as it were the appearance of fire and it had brightness round about as the appearance of the bow that is in the cloud, bow that is in the cloud in the day of rain. So was the appearance of the brightness round about. That was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. And so there's this, there's a, it wasn't just a sort of a dark image. It was this bright, brilliant fire often speaks to us of judgment. Right? Because a fire judges something. It judges that wood pretty well, right? Not much left at the end of it. We think of the judgment not only for tragically sin and the fires of hell, but even ourselves at the judgment seat of Christ. Not that we'll be punished, but that our works, our intentions, our motivations will be judged. And what's going to be left? Some things are going to be wood, hay, and stubble, going to be burned up. Other things are going to be precious stones, gold, and silver that will remain where if anything, the fire makes that gold more pure as opposed to destroying it. And no, no surprise when he says, and when I saw it, I fell on my face. And yet, I heard a voice of one that spake. This is a beautiful theme throughout the whole of the Old Testament. Not only do we have a holy and a righteous God, not only do we have a God who made this planet, not only do we have a God who exists in this glorious manner, He's interested in speaking to us. That's not always the uh, reputation of all great leaders, is it? That they really want to hear what the people say, that they're really interested in speaking to us. They like the sound of their voice, but they're not really willing truly to speak to us. The God who made these gorgeous mountains behind us spoke to me this morning. You know that? I don't mean audibly spoke to me this morning right but does he not speak to you if you're not doing this like we said yesterday covering up your ears if your ears are open he wants to speak to you and what does he say and he said unto me son of man stand upon thy feet and i will speak unto thee and the spirit entered into me when he yet spake and set me upon my feet that i heard him that speak uh, spake unto me go down to uh, chapter 3 or right to the end of chapter 2, sorry, verse 9. And when I looked, behold, a hand was sent unto me, and lo, a roll of a book was therein. And he spread it before me, and it was written within and without, and there was written therein lamentations and mourning and woe. Moreover, he said unto me, Son of man, eat that thou findest. Eat this roll, and go speak unto the house of Israel. So this is not the first prophet or the first person in the Scriptures. We, we also know this at the Gospel of John and others, uh, or the, the uh, Apostle John and others, where literally the Lord asks us to eat his word. Which is why, of course, the word is often referred to as the bread of life, because you eat it. Now, sometimes it was sweet. Sometimes it was sweet to the taste, but then a little bit bitter when it got into the belly. And that's right. I don't know I mean, we all say we enjoyed Ken's message this morning, but there's a part of me that didn't, if you know what I mean. I was saying to uh, a few the other day, one of the first times I shared a, a meeting with uh, Joe Reese, you know, one of these Joe conferences, uh, Joe to the power of two. And, uh, and, and Joe came and spoke at, uh, at, at our uh, conference once, and his title was A Lot and His Compromise. And he said, brethren, he said, it's going to be a hard message to preach. But then he leaned in and looked at us. And said, and even harder to listen to. 
you know. Uh, there, there was a brother who, who uh, lived a couple hours away from where I grew up, and he had this, this expression that he often used, that when he prayed at the start of his message, and he'd, he'd ask the Lord that we would be uncomfortable in our seats. And sometimes it can be a little bit uncomfortable when you swallow the Word of God. But it doesn't mean that it's wrong or that it's bad, of course. It just, we know, it has to uh, have its impact on us. So I opened my mouth, and he caused me to eat the roll. And he said unto me, Son of man, cause thy belly to eat, and fill thy bowels with this roll that I give thee. Then did I eat it, and it was in my mouth as honey for sweetness. Quick exhortation here. You can't enjoy that sweetness of the Lord if you're not eating it. Right? I mean, you can go on to uh, all these different websites now that have been created to uh, rate um, restaurants. And you can read about how delicious the meals are at this place and that place. But if you never eat it, you'll never really understand the taste. How is your appetite right now for the things of God? How much of this role have you been consuming over the last six months of your life? Are you reading your Bible every day? I mean, I'm asking you basic things. But if you're getting a little squirmy in your seat, I want the Lord to exhort you. You know, I've said so often that I'm Ken and I are given this responsibility to, to herald the word of God, right? We're not special per se. The Lord gives gifts to be able to teach certain things. But, you know, in a sense, there isn't rocket science here because we all have the same spirit of God. There's no gift to understand the scriptures because we have a spirit of God to teach us it. And I might suggest humbly, it's going to be difficult for the spirit of God to teach me a passage if I haven't read it. And so I have, as some of you know, a bit of a personal policy. I do not like to preach on a passage until I've read it about 100 times. I don't necessarily count every time to get to 100, but I'm pretty of a good sense. Because I miss stuff. I don't know about you, but I miss stuff the first 50, 60 times. All of a sudden, things start to make sense. And that's not to be academic, per se, about it or, or to be rigid. And some read slower and some read faster and some have more ease of reading and others not. But the reality is, and people get very uptight about translations and Bible study helps and commentaries. Look, all those things are extremely helpful. But can you start with the very basics? Right? Yes, pepper and Cholula sauce and whatever else is good on the meal. But you got to have the meal first. Right? We've been fed lots of great meals here. But most places don't come and say, oh, yeah, Joe, we've got ketchup for lunch. Ketchup might be helpful, give it a little bit more flavor, but you got to start with the essential meal. So before you worry about what this word means and the translation of it, and, oh, I can't understand this Bible, it's so complicated, just read it. Spirit of God lives within you. You have the author at your disposal. Imagine when you have to do that book review for school. If the author of the book sat down next to you and said, here, this is what I really meant. I've often said that of Shakespeare, right? Sometimes I kind of understand what he or multiple Shakespeare's were trying to say. Imagine if they sat down next to you and said, here, let me help you with your book report. Your teacher would probably fail you. But nonetheless, <laughs> you have the author at your disposal. 
And listen to what he says, though, unfortunately, verse 4. And he said unto me, Son of man, go, get thee into the house of Israel and speak with my words unto them. For thou art not sent to a people of a strange speech and of a hard language, but to the house of Israel, not to many of a strange speech and of a hard uh, language, whose words thou canst not understand. Surely, I had, uh, had I sent thee to them, they would have hearkened unto thee. Sad, isn't it? He's saying that the other nations would hearken more, but the house of Israel will not hearken unto thee, for they will not hearken unto me, for all the house of Israel are impudent and hard-hearted. Behold, I have made thy face strong against their faces, and thy forehead strong against their foreheads, as an adamant harder than flint have I made thy forehead. Fear them not, neither be dismayed at their looks, though they be a rebellious house." This is the challenge to us when we face difficult circumstances, that God can uh, persevere and help us through it. All right, time's going quickly. So jump over, uh, skip right ahead to Ezekiel 37. We'll read a few verses there. And in, in 48, and then we'll go through a handout together. 37. We can't, we can't talk about Ezekiel and not talk about some of these dry bones. Uh, verse 1. The hand of the Lord was upon me and carried me out in the spirit of the Lord and set me down in the midst of the valley, which was full of bones and caused me to pass by them round about. Behold, there were very many in the open valley and lo, they were dry. You know, sometimes things are pretty obvious in the scripture, right? You see a bunch of bones out in the field. Okay, they were dry. And he said unto me, son of man, can these bones live? Um, what do you? say when you don't know the answer to a question you either look at the person ask the question and say what do you think right you know when one of these like really smart medical students or residents comes and says dr McHale, why is this on the uh test or why does this happen well that's an excellent question i'd like you to look up the answer and bring it back to me tomorrow you know but but he says uh, when he says uh, i answered oh lord god thou knowest Good answer, right? Because he knows everything. Again, he said unto me, prophesy unto the bones and say unto them, O ye dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Now, there must have been an awkward pause here. I, I mean, I'm not trying to make light of the story. I'm not trying to be funny about it per se. But can you imagine if the Lord comes to me today and says, Joe, I want you to speak to these dry uh, uh, leaves on the ground. R- really? Lord, they're, they're, they're leaves. They're like, they're dead, right? They're, they're on the ground. But it's not what he said. Then saith the Lord God unto these bones, behold, I will cause breath to enter into you and ye shall live. And I will lay sinews upon you and will bring up flesh upon you and cover you with skin and put breath in you and ye shall live and ye shall know that I am the Lord. So what did, what did Ezekiel do? He spoke to the bones. It's like we heard earlier from Ken. There's an obedience bit. I mean, the Lord doesn't want us to check our minds at the door. You know, sometimes people think that as Christians, we're the most gullible people on the planet. I mean, imagine there are people who think that the, the, the falls get turned off at night. But, um, you know, that, that, we, that we are uh, so gullible that, that what you have to do, and this is what my colleagues tell me all the time, that they think of it as intellectual suicide. Joe, to trust in Christ the way you're describing is to turn off my scientific mind. Of course, I try to explain to them that's anything but the truth. And, and as Christians, we're not these sort of just gullible sheep going, bah, bah, I'll go anywhere you want. Biblical faith is coming to trust 
that God is trustworthy. Because it's not based on some blind faith. It's based on the authority of the person speaking to you. And the person speaking to me is the God of the universe. But there are times when we don't understand. We don't know. And those are the very times that he causes us to think and to want to be absolutely obedient. I love how Abraham obeyed. When he didn't know where he was going, Hebrews tells us he went out not knowing whether he went. He obeyed when he didn't know how. I mean, how am I? I mean, like, I'm, you talk about geriatric. I mean, he's up in his 90s, and he's going to have a son. And perhaps most importantly, he obeyed when he didn't know why that miracle son given to him now has to be sacrificed. That's a test of your obedience. Has God called you to obey when you don't know where you're going, when you don't know how he's going to do it, and you don't know why he's doing it to you? That's true obedience. Of course, I can't help but think of the Lord Jesus, who obeyed when he knew exactly where he was going, when he knew exactly how he would be treated, and when he knew exactly why he would suffer. You know why he suffered? You look around this, these tables here today. These chairs here today, this is why he suffered. For, for you. That's the kind of obedience that Ezekiel demonstrated here when, of course, he spoke these words. Finally, go over to chapter 48, the last chapter um, uh, of the book, and we'll read a couple of verses at the end here. You remember, of course, that there was two captivities, right? Remember the nation was divided, Israel and Judah? Israel went into the Assyrian captivity that had happened about 150 years before. And now we have the Babylonian captivity taking Judah away. So as far as the world is concerned, as far as the practical situation here, you've got Jews scattered all over the known world. You don't have a single leader. The tribes are divided. I mean, you talk about the most divided country you could imagine. Well, what do we read here at chapter 30 of, of um, Ezekiel 48. And these are the goings out of the city on the north side, 4,500 measures. And the gates of the city shall be after the names of the tribe of Israel, three gates northward, one gate of Reuben, one gate of Judah, one gate of Levi. And at the east side, 4,500 and three gates, one gate of Joseph, one gate of Benjamin, one gate of Dan. And at the south side, 4,500 measures and three gates, one gate of Simeon, one gate of Issachar, one gate of Zebulun. And the west side, 4,500, with their three gates, one for Gad, one for Asher, one for Naphtali. And it was round about 18,000 measures. And the name of the city from that day shall be, the Lord is there. He's in the midst of this prison camp. And what does he Share with the people. What vision does the Lord give to him? He gives to them a united Israel. There's no Israel and Judah anymore. It's just these 12 tribes coexisting together. Sometimes we feel, as Christians, we're scattered all over the planet. We haven't any unity. It's hard to know and times to distinguish the Christian from the non-Christian. We feel like we're defeated on every elm. We're being affected politically, socially, uh, uh, ethically, you name it. Well, God has a future not only for Israel, but he has a future for us. And that's the kind of comfort that God gives us. He doesn't just say, buck up, little trooper. Only 48 more miles to Nevada Falls. Just keep trucking. 
He gives us that glimpse of the future and how he's going to bring us together. So let's put this all together now and think a bit about Ezekiel. As I mentioned, the names of our, of our uh, prophets this week are important. His name means God strengthens. Isn't that perfect? In the midst of this captivity, in the midst of all the challenges, he's the one who strengthens us. And he was in that, as I said, second wave of captives about 11 years before um, Jerusalem was destroyed as the comforter prophet. Some have questioned the unity of this book, but I think most of us would appreciate uh, that that questioning is, is rather foolishness. Most people are familiar, as I mentioned, with the imagery of the wheel and of the dry bones, which I've mentioned here. But what are the what are the major themes that we've seen through this book? Well, number one, go figure. We've said it from the start with each of these prophets that there is a severity to sin and its consequences. You know, those parents that say, listen, Billy, you keep doing this and we're going to leave the movie theater. You keep doing this. We're going to get we're, I'm going to turn it off. You, you keep doing this. And then you, you hear the parents doing that over and over and over again. And they never have the judgment to come. God is a man of his word. What he says happens. And when he said judgment will come, judgment will come. And I know we're not formally, if you will, in a gospel meeting today, but let me ask you, do you know unequivocally that your sins are forgiven? My Bible says that you can know it, not just hope and maybe feel it. Because judgment will come. I'm not to be morbid about it, but none of us here are guaranteed life today. You know, particularly as an oncologist and what I do in my work in cancer, I, I'm careful to talk too much about death, but I, let me tell you, I see people die every day, young and old, from a month old to 100 years old. Death is real. Well, the Lord may come today. Kind of a great place to go to be with the Lord from, right? We're a little bit closer to the clouds here, right? Do you know unequivocally that that sin's been dealt with? Oh, what a relief to know that I needn't pay for my sins because they've been paid for and paid in full. But even amongst the people of God, as we said before, the penalty is gone, but consequences remain. But how beautiful the Lord didn't give up on his people. The glory of the Lord is unparalleled. The imagery here is is really overwhelming. I encourage you to take a little bit more time. I know you've already got some homework that's uh, overdue, right? I think the best we can get is a C, right? Let's, he's going to ask again, I'm sure, tomorrow. So let's not all get Ds, okay? But um, spend some time looking at this beautiful imagery. When you think of glory, what do you think of? We tend to think of bright lights and shining and, you know, Moses coming down. His face was still glowing after it. Let me just give you one deeper dimension to glory. Glory is perhaps, yes, an outer manifestation, but it is inherently connected to character. There's no perfect definition, but the best definition I think I've heard of glory, it is the outer manifestation of inner character. I wonder if our new bodies will be more uh, flipping inside out that our inner character is exposed on the outside. That's why I can say for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. It's not that we come short of the brightness of God, but we come short of that inner character of his that is pure and spotless and holy. 
And so they're beautiful imagery. We only looked at a few of them of the glory of the Lord. The sovereignty of God stands before all others. We, we statements here where he has, he can put dry bones together and make them into a body. Who else can do that? Well, we get pretty excited because, you know, we can get a, an app that helps us look, put our pictures together so they look cute on social media. So as we heard last night, so people can ooh and ah about the life that we don't really live, right? I mean, we get really excited as, as a human race because we can uh, develop uh, various technologies and, and make iPhones smaller and, and make this faster and build cars that can go 100 miles an hour. You find me someone who can make that mountain right there. There's only one. As one brother put it nicely, he stands in the solitude of himself. There is simply no comparison with our God. Number four, revival is possible. This is, of course, a practical part uh, as we think about this together. I mean, here's the nation. They're divided. They're despondent. They're still rebellious. I mean, you might think that an evil nation coming in and ripping you out of your homes and dragging you off into captivity might soften your heart a bit. But the Lord tells Ezekiel, I want you to go and speak, and they're not going to listen. Can you imagine if the Lord had said to me, um, Joe, I want you to travel down to Yosemite and take your wife and your kids, and I want you to go and speak at the conference, and no one is going to listen to a word of it. I might have been inappropriately sick this week. You know what I mean? Uh, but if God had told us to do it, as he's calling us to do. And there are times when things seem impossible. Let me reassure you, we serve the God of the impossible. He makes impossible situations feasible, doable, possible. And you might say, oh, that's not going to happen in my life. I've wronged the Lord so much. I'm so far behind. Our assembly is divided and struggling. We've had this issue after that issue. And there may be some elders here who are discouraged and heartbroken. Let me tell you, it is not your assembly. It's his. He is the one who can make it happen. You know, I, I've often said this, I'm sure some of you have said before, I'm always amazed in um, the miracles of the Lord Jesus, how often he employs other people to work with him. I mean, as if like I can do anything to raise Lazarus from the dead. Right? But he raised Lazarus from the dead and then asked them to take off his grave clothes. Somehow God has this beautiful modality in which he wants to work with us. He'll do the impossible bit. I can do the impossible bit by preaching the gospel. He'll do the impossible bit by convicting someone's soul and bringing them to salvation. I can't save anybody. I'm just Joe. See, in the average Joe, you can say that when your name is Joe, right? But he wants to do the impossible, the miraculous in your life and in your assembly. Number five, he comforts his people despite their circumstances. You might say to me, look, Joe, there is nobody here and there's nobody back home who understands what I'm going through. You know what? You may be right. He knows. We'll talk a bit about this more when we come to Lamentations. It's not only that he knows. When God knows things, he doesn't just know them in some kind of mastermind sort of way. He knows them because he cares for them as well. 
So Ezekiel had to deliver this message. He spent about 20 years delivering this message at the start of the captivity. We'll continue on with Daniel tomorrow. And at times they said, well, okay, if God is so great, why does he just take us back to the land? What he wanted, what was the purpose of the captivity? Was it just to punish them? When you punish, as it were, your children, is it just for them to suffer? No, it's to correct them, isn't it? It's to bring them back. They had to understand it wasn't about the land. They might like their honey and their milk and their big grapes. But that wasn't the point. The point of the land was a place to enjoy the Lord. So he didn't just say, okay, you've, you've paid your dues. You, you, you've done your suffering. Now let's pull you back into the land. No, no. I want you to bring you back to me. And in case we think that God is uh, very narrow in his thinking, we see here that not only was his prophecy to uh, Judah, but he also had a prophecy to the nations around. God was still interested in those other nations, the ones listed here, Ammon and Moab and Edom and so many others. And then, of course, told them about the future. But they had to come back to the Lord first. Now, people often say, let's get your priorities right. God's number one. Well, what goes two, three and four? I mean, realistically, nothing else belongs on the list. Putting the Lord first puts everything else in perspective. If you're here today and you're struggling. The answer is not per se to come back to the people of God or to get things right at the assembly. The thing is to come back to the Lord himself. That's what they needed to do first. Lord, help us to see that. We'll see when we come, of course, uh, to further books that they eventually did make it back to the land. But they had to make it back with a heart that was right with God. Is your heart right with God today? Have you even perhaps being, if you will, taken into captivity? Have you made your heart right with God? I can't fix it. Ken can't fix it. That's something between you and the Lord. But let's be encouraged that we have a God who, despite his holiness and never compromising his holy standard, wants to comfort you. You have the Spirit of God living within you, who's the one who comes alongside that beautiful comforter to carry you home. Let's pray. Father, we are so grateful for the opportunity to gather today. How marvelous in this beautiful setting, surrounded by thy creation, that we can gather together and read and understand and seek to understand more about our beautiful Lord Jesus. We're thankful that he is, in one sense, the incomprehensible one, but yet the one who reveals himself to us minute by minute. We're blessed to be here today. Father, watch over us, encourage us, encourage our fellowship. We pray that these two messages will take effect and not just be a mental assent to the word of God, but help us to understand the severity of that sin and help us to make things right with our wonderful God. Bless us now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.